Today we talk about the dangers of moral relativism and the importance of seeking not your truth, not my truth, but the truth. All of this and more on another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. Welcome back to another episode of Refining Politics and Culture. Happy Thursday, everybody. It is an honor to be speaking with you today as we explore what it looks like together to have vitally important political, cultural, and faith conversations, all with the ultimate goal of exuding truth and love, conviction, and grace in our discourse. I hope you all have had a great week so far. It was an awesome privilege to be able to talk to you just yesterday, 24 hours ago, about the Democratic National Convention, a false sense of unity, how we can show true biblical unity amidst a culture that is really valuing a false sense of unity. Also, we talked about how we can spot wolves in sheep's clothing and ensure that we are prioritizing God's kingdom first and foremost amidst this culture. So if you have not had the opportunity to go back and listen to that episode, please go back and give that a listen. I hope and pray that that blesses you and that you find it a benefit. Today, I want to focus most of this episode on one primary topic that is very relevant to much of what we are seeing throughout culture and our politics today. But before I do, I want to get into two quick current event stories. First is this. This is townhall.com. Boom. Operation Legend takes dozens of killers off the streets, tracks down thousands of fugitives. This is Attorney General William Barr speaking. Three weeks ago, we substantially expanded Operation Legend, and we are now underway in nine U.S. cities. The operation is named for Legend Talaferro, a four-year-old boy who was shot tragically while he was asleep in his apartment. For us, Legend is a symbol of the many hundreds of innocent lives that have been taken in the recent upsurge in crime in many of our urban areas, Barr said. His life mattered, and the lives of all those victims matter. His name should be remembered, and his senseless death, like those of all the other innocent victims in this recent surge, should be unacceptable to all Americans. Through Operation Legend, the federal government has dispatched to these nine cities more than a 1,000 additional agents to work shoulder-to-shoulder with our state and local partners. Operation Legend is the heart of the federal government's response to this upturn in violent crime. Its mission is to save lives, solve crimes, and take violent offenders off the streets before they can claim more victims. So rather than demonizing and defunding our police, they are supporting and strengthening our law enforcement partners at the state and local level. Barr continues, so far, federal and state task forces involved in Operation Legend have made almost 1,500 arrests. Many of those arrests are for violent state crimes, including 90 homicides like Legend's murderer. That's more than 90 suspected killers who might still be on the streets without Operation Legend. And in many cities, as I said, the operation is just getting started. So this is huge. I'm so thankful for William Barr. He is by far the best attorney general, certainly of my lifetime, and arguably one of the best attorney generals we've had over the last hundred years, I would say. And I'm grateful for him because while these different cities are being overrun by violence in the streets and people being abused and taken advantage of and exploited at the hands of these violent criminals and these local officials, city councils and mayors that are too obsessed with progressive politics and painting Black Lives Matter murals on their streets, yet turning a blind eye to the actual crime that is disproportionately affecting black and brown people, while they are focusing on that and not doing anything about this crime, in fact, they are defunding their polices or, uh, or they are removing funding 
in large ways and allocating it to other areas when it's been proven time and time again that the more police you have in a city, the safer that city is. While the top 10 most dangerous cities in the country are all run by Democrats, that's just a fact. So while progressive policies are destroying these cities and allowing for crime to run rampant, I'm not saying that the mayors are the ones that are doing the crime. I am simply saying that certain policies allow for environments for crime to flourish more than other policies do. It all comes back to policies. While all that's taking place, William Barr is saying we have to step up and fill in the gap because these mayors, these city councils are not going to do it. They refuse to do it. They are too focused on social justice instead of true justice. True justice actually will protect the vulnerable because it shows no impartiality and it's not trying to focus too much on a socially conscious image and portraying these different PR stunts rather than actually getting on the ground and doing work that would actually help these communities. So William Barr is stepping up and saying, nope, not for our Justice Department. We're actually going to step up and make real change, take actual violent criminals off the streets in order to protect the most vulnerable like this little legend Talaferro, this four-year-old boy. So grateful for William Barr. I'll keep you guys updated on how uh, this operation continues to progress. But I'm thankful for the Justice Department that they are stepping in and are filling in this gap in a major way. The second story is this. This is out of CBS. Former FBI lawyer pleads guilty in first criminal charge from Durham Probe. Former FBI lawyer Kevin Kleinsmith pleaded guilty to one count of making a false statement on Wednesday, admitting he doctored an email that was submitted to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court as part of a FISA application used to surveillance or used for surveillance of the former Trump campaign advisor Carter Page during the FBI's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. Now, If you've never heard of the phrase Obamagate, if you haven't looked much into the origins of the Russian probe in 2016, the Durham investigation, the Steele dossier, if these terms are foreign, no problem at all. It's a bit of a confusing story, but it's vitally important because what we are seeing unfold in front of our eyes and what we're seeing with this first guilty plea of this Durham probe is the confirmation that a suspicion that has been held over the last few years is actually true. The suspicion has been that the Russian investigation led by Robert Mueller, so the investigation into possible Russian collusion with the Trump campaign in 2016, uh, that investigation has been shrouded in skepticism, and there have been multiple figures within the Justice Department that have questioned whether or not the origins of that were truly pure and whether the intentions were pure or if there was some sort of uh, meddling involved on behalf of the Obama administration. There have been many documents released over the last six months that have detailed this, that have shown that there is uh, a, a real possibility here that the Obama administration actually spied on the incoming Trump campaign in 2016 and early 2017, that the Obama administration directed the FBI to act illegally in its attempt to meddle with the Trump campaign and frame the Trump campaign to essentially create a case for impeaching the president through this Mueller investigation. Well, all that has been a suspicion. Now, with this first guilty plea of this Durham probe, we now know that that actually happened. We don't know the full implications of it yet, but we do know that an incoming president's administration was spied on methodically in a calculated manner by the outgoing administration. 
at whose direction yet to be seen and proven. But we can say this, this was one of the greatest political crimes in United States history. That Russia investigation that went on for two years was essentially a sham. And yet it was, uh, it was dragged out. It was all the media talked about. If you turned on MSNBC, it was the only thing Rachel Maddow talked about for two years straight. And now we know it was all a sham. When General Michael Flynn, we found about, out about the unmasking, that was more evidence of this. Again, if, if a lot of this seems foreign, we will do an entire episode on this. But what you need to know is simply this. This was incredibly illegal. So much of what we were sold the first two years of Trump's presidency about this Russia story ended up being completely false and intentionally false. It was intentionally fabricated, and the FBI acted in an illegal manner, in an illegal manner, excuse me, to paint this President Trump's administration in a negative light. So whether or not you like Trump, this should deeply grieve you. This should be something that you say, you know what, uh, partisan politics aside, this is not okay. John Durham has been working on this investigation over the last year at the direction of William Barr. Uh, John Durham is a U.S. attorney from Connecticut. And this is just the beginning of his findings. So there will be much more released over the coming weeks and months through this investigation, and we will see how far-reaching the depths of this corruption go. But it should be deeply concerning that the FBI and the highest offices of the land were involved in this type of illegal and cor uh, corrupt activity. So that's the second story there. Much more on this we'll continue to cover as we move forward. I want to jump now into the, the main topic of our episode for today. I want to talk about something that I've seen rampant throughout society, especially over the last decade, and much more over the last few years especially, I want to talk about moral relativism. What is moral relativism? Well, simply, it's the belief that your truth is different than my truth, meaning that truth is some relative concept, and therefore there's no such thing as absolute truth or absolute morality. So if you've followed anybody Anybody that is anybody with the blue check on Twitter or if you followed any social media influencers on Instagram that are not rooted in a biblical worldview, even some that are, sadly, you'll probably have heard them speak over the last few years of their truth or your truth and how it's so important to speak your truth and it's so important for others to understand their truth. Oprah Winfrey in 2018 at the Golden Globes gave an historic speech where she shared uh, from the stage while millions of people are watching that the key to moving forward in society, one of the greatest things we can do is emphasizing speaking your truth. One of the greatest things you can do for yourself and for the world around you. Speak your truth. Not speak the truth, speak your truth. So moral relativism says that there is no objective external standard for right and wrong that is absolutely valid for everyone. And so any statement that blank is wrong is relative to your standard of measurement, but you can't claim that others should submit to that standard of measurement. So it basically makes morality, right and wrong, good and evil, this, this relative assessment that can change person to person. Obviously, just on the surface, this is deeply problematic for multiple reasons. And we're seeing this take a, a front row seat in our culture we're seeing this take a front row seat in our politics. We're even seeing this creep its way into our church. If you've followed Catholic, the Catholic church at all over the last few years, you know Pope Francis has been largely accused 
of espousing moral relativist rhetoric. And we know that many progressive churches have jumped on board with this bandwagon as well, sharing that maybe there's even multiple ways to heaven and that Jesus is just one of multiple ways. We know that that's a core tenet of the New Age movement. So we're seeing it become more and more of a mainstream idea in society. Why is moral relativism so dangerous? I want to break down a few examples and reasons of why it's so dangerous and why it's something that we as Christians should be on the lookout for and on our guard against. Number one, because it redefines core necessary tenets of society. So, for example, there was a time where it was well understood that man is a man and woman is a woman. A boy is a boy and a girl is a girl. Biology states that. The Bible states that. It is just absolute biological truth that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. There's no other options. There's no other exceptions. That is the truth. Well, over the last few decades, and we really saw this start to even play on the early stages in the sexual revolution, the 60s, the 70s, the Vietnam era, this sort of liberated movement with our bodies where people were desiring to break free of the confounds or the confines of the traditional nuclear family and wanted to explore sexuality. Well, that, that desire to explore eventually led into the desire to explore fluidity amidst gender. So you saw people start to say, well, maybe I don't have to be confined to my biological reality. Maybe if I feel something different, I can choose that something different. So more relativism has said, well, that's fine that you desire to be a man because you have male genitalia, but I actually, my truth is something different. I'm actually a girl. And so the transgender movement really has broken out into the mainstream over the last two decades. We see this in the abortion issue where some people say, well, it's fine that you're against abortion. And that's, you know, that's all fine and dandy that the biology supports the pro-life argument, which, by the way, it clearly does at this point in history. The, the biology and the science is so advanced, we so clearly understand that life begins at conception. There's just no argument against it any longer. But people will still try to throw in moral relativism and say things like, well, it's fine that you feel like there's a problem with abortion. You don't have to get one. But my truth is that abortion is fine. This is deeply problematic. It's the intentional distorting of biological and biblical realities. And it it completely neglects what God has called us to in our identities. So if I am basically saying, "Eh, my truth is different than your truth, we are no longer bound by biology or our identities that God has given us, it is a running away from any sort of grounding and running towards a total subjective lifestyle that is not rooted or based in anything that's actually tangibly true. So the first reason it's so dangerous is because it does. It redefines core necessary tenets of society. We all have to come to a common understanding of what biology is. We have to come to a common understanding of what the science clearly shows related to when life begins. We have to come to a common understanding in society that is rooted in the truth related to identity and how God has created humankind. Second reason it's so dangerous is because moral relativism allows for flawed humans to create morality. And in turn, they'll always create it to their advantage. So Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote Warning to the West, uh, he, he, there's a quote that I think is brilliant. He said, communism has never concealed the fact that it rejects all absolute concepts of morality. So Solzhenitsyn is 
has firsthand experience with the brutality of communism in the Soviet Union, and he is speaking of the the fact that communism and socialism, these these Marxist ideologies, rely on moral relativism. They have to reject all absolute concepts of morality. He continues, it scoffs at any consideration of good and evil as indisputable categories. Communism considers morality be, to be relative, to be a class matter. Depending on circumstances in the political situation, any act, including murder, even the killing of hundreds of thousands, could be good or could be bad. It all depends on class ideology. And who defines this ideology? The whole class cannot get together to pass judgment. That's not how it works. A handful of people determine what is good and what is bad. But I must say that in this respect, communism has been most successful. It has infected the whole world with the belief in the relativity of good and evil. Today, many people apart from the communists are carried away by this idea. We're seeing this today with the rise of these social justice movements that have basically said that some things are wrong for other groups, but not wrong for these groups. So for example, in our modern United States today, it is completely socially acceptable for a person of color to demonize a white person, but a white person cannot even slightly criticize uh, a person of color. That's deemed as racist. So acceptable for one class, uh, racist for another. A man cannot criticize a woman. It is seen as sexist. A woman can criticize men as a whole, bunch them into one category as a group, and it's seen as female empowerment. A straight person cannot speak honestly about the homosexual community or their beliefs on uh, sexuality without being deemed a homophobe, but a person who practices a homosexual lifestyle can, can, absolutely, uh, can absolutely rail against heterosexual human beings, cisgendered people, and it is totally acceptable. And if anything, it's empowered perspective. And so this is really dangerous because it allows morality to be based upon class, what class you're on or what class you're a part of, what social group you identify with is basically the determining factor for what is acceptable morality-wise. So this has been proven to be very dangerous in the 20th century. Soviet Union employed these tactics. Nazi Germany employed these tactics where they basically allowed for moral relativism to empower the leaders to redefine good and evil. And once the ruling power was in power, they would redefine morality in a way in which would suit their agenda and bring about the, the populace, uh, hopefully, adopting their sense of morality to destructive ends. And this is obviously for us Christians and believers, we understand that it's, it's even more deeply concerning because anytime you're having humans create morality, it's inherently going to be a flawed sense of morality. And so if humans are the ones dictating right and wrong, not only is that completely blasphemous and a very antichrist sort of attitude, but it also is building a worldview and building a world based upon our flawed perspectives rather than God's desire for humanity. When we recognize that God has created the law, he has written the law on the hearts of every man, he is the one that has set the stars and the planets and the earth into motion. We understand good and evil only through the context of God and his creating of morality. If we understand that, then we are able to understand that good and evil are infallible. 
meaning the definitions of them are things that can't just change with our changing opinions, but God has actually set these things into play, and these are things that we can trust and rely on, that the natural law created by the Lord is something that is reliable, and it is what we can base our decision-making off of. So that second reason why it's so dangerous, it allows for flawed humans to create morality, and they'll always create it to their advantage, like Solzhenitsyn talked about. When a communist power or any other power that employs moral relativism gets into power, they will bend morality, they will bend good and evil to suit their desires and their interests. And because humans are inherently flawed, when they're the ones creating morality, it always ends up badly. So today in our society, beware of morality based upon class, that certain groups you're allowed to do things that other groups it's morally wrong to do. It especially gets dangerous when certain groups are able to do things that are called good while other groups do the exact same things and it's called evil. That is a morality based upon class and it is detrimental and it has been the foundational principle of many murderous genocidal movements over the last hundred years. It's not good. The third reason moral relativism is so dangerous is because it prioritizes feeling over factual reality. So it employs a sort of I feel, therefore I am worldview. Uh, there's actually a historian named A.E. Salmon who famously quoted, he said, truth is only relative to those that ignore hard evidence. So his basic point was this, that to the moral relativist, evidence and factual realities are of no utility because all you're focused on is what feels true. If all I need to know is what feels true for me, and I'm not concerned with seeking an actual absolute truth that binds us all, well, then all I need to pay attention to is my feelings. There's no reason to care about facts because I get to basically essentially create truth. And I get to define it, and I get to create the boundaries for it, where it stops, where it starts, etc. And I want to pause here to say feelings are not inherently evil. Our, our Lord felt many things. One of the, in fact, it is the shortest verse of the Bible. It's also one of the most powerful. Jesus wept. We know that Jesus experienced sadness. We know that God experienced anger, frustration. The Bible says that at times he was pleased, and at other times he was displeased. He experienced compassion and mercy a desire for justice. The Lord uh, was not a numb God. He experienced emotion and feelings. Now, he taught us how to handle those feelings in a perfect manner, to express them in a godly way, to lead us toward holiness and righteousness, that these things would not be things that we would seek to determine truth, but that feelings and emotions would instead be solely just facets of life, indicators of how we're doing. What becomes deeply problematic is that feelings sometimes to our modern generation will become overemphasized, they will be prioritized over factual realities, and they will be seen as fact. I will feel, therefore I am. So for example, this going back to this gender piece, I feel, I know my biological reality is a male, but people will say, I feel like a female, so therefore I am a female. We used to call that gender dysphoria. Now it is a core tenet of the sexual liberation movement and the LGBTQ plus agenda. Whatever you feel, that is what you are. So you've seen this overemphasis on feeling where people have put their feelings in the driver's seat and have allowed for feelings to run rampant over factual realities. And then our cultural leaders 
educational leaders are not actually stepping up to the plate and loving people well enough to say, hey, actually, your feelings don't dictate truth. Sometimes your feelings line up with the truth. Other times they don't line up with the truth. The truth should always be prioritized. There is one truth. There is one factual reality about who you are, your identity. And if your feelings line up with that, great. If not, it doesn't mean that those truths are all of a sudden thrown out the window. It means that your feelings are wrong and your feelings are fleeting and that your heart is deceitful. So it's really important for us to recognize feelings can be a great tool, but when they are in the driver's seat, it is deeply problematic. Factual realities, standards of life have to be prioritized above these fleeting feelings. The tides that change of our emotional state. There's a historian named A.E. Salmon that says that truth is only relative to those that ignore hard evidence. So what he's essentially saying is that to the moral relativist, hard evidence is of no utility. It's important that we take a different road, that we recognize that evidence and factual realities have to be the basis for truth. The Bible, more than anything, has to be the basis for absolute truth. And anything that doesn't align with that is not inherently truth. So that's the third reason that this is so dangerous. The fourth reason that moral relativism is so dangerous is because it is a slippery slope inherently. So if you follow the logic of moral relativism, it leads you to a place where there's inherently no standards for good or bad any longer. If you apply moral relativism to any one place, you inherently have to apply it to all places. So if anything is morally relative, everything has to be morally relative. That's why the Christian author Frank Turek says that if there's no objective morality, then love is inherently no better than murder. Why would it be? If nothing is inherently grounded in absolute truth, then nothing is inherently grounded in absolute truth. What makes love better than murder? What makes murder even wrong? That sounds extreme, but again, if I believe that you have a different standard for right and wrong than I do, then inherently I have to carry that logic all the way through. If I believe that something is okay for some cultures, but it's not okay for other cultures, then I have to carry that logic all the way through. If you have a murderous tribe in South America that believes that it's totally fine to kill people as part of ritualistic ceremonies, I just use this example because this has actually been an actual ethical question that's been asked in the past, for them and their tribe, that is a part of human sacrifice is a part of their tribal rituals. If I'm unwilling to say that that is morally wrong, then I have to carry that logic to say that nothing is inherently morally wrong. No society that carries out atrocities is inherently wrong. Moral relativism is such a dangerous slope because you would have to then carry that logic into the mass atrocities that were committed in Nazi Germany and Maoist China and Stalinist Russia. You would have to say that they were just acting on their truth. And at the end of the day, who's to say they were right or wrong? Again, this slippery slope runs away so fast. And the more relativist and the postmodernist, the progressives today that believe in more relativism, that emphasize your truth is different than my truth and something can be true for you but not for me, they do not like to talk about the uncomfortable reality that following that line of logic leads to absolutely disastrous places ideologically.
and we should run away from that belief system. We have to be able to say there is one truth. There is one absolute truth. It is grounded in the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ, and the law that the Lord has set forth for us. And we recognize that biology and all these other facets of society have to align with that truth. Any feelings or fleeting emotions or temporal desires or fleshly desires that don't align with that have to be cast off, not taken seriously as evidence for actual truth. Otherwise, we lead really dangerous places throughout history. The, the fifth reason that moral relativism is so dangerous is because it stands directly opposed to God. So like I just said, John 14, 6, there is only one way, one truth, one life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2, 10, they perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. God is the the only figure that encompasses all truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Anybody cannot come through the Father, to the Father, except through him. There is one way to heaven. There is one way to experience eternal truth, and that is only through Jesus Christ. That is only through living the life that he has called us to live, saying yes to him. He has to be the basis for all truth. If he says something is right, it is right. If he says something is wrong, it is wrong. There are so many Christians today that desire to make God in their image rather than recognizing that we are people made in God's image. He makes the rules. We do not make the rules. We follow them. Moral relativism says that, well, God's rules would just be one set of rules. Jesus would just be one way out of multiple ways to God, to the Father, to nirvana, to fulfillment, to whatever it might be. And so it completely is blasphemous in nature, stripping away the reality that you have one option of how to access eternal life, and it is just Jesus. That is it. There's, there's a quote, actually. Um, Dwight Longenecker said that first, in, he's basically outlined this, this path that we go through in society to normalize evil and then persecute those that, that still call it evil. He says, first, we overlook evil. Then we permit evil. Then we legalize evil. Then we promote evil. Then we celebrate evil. Then we persecute those who still call it evil. And friends, that's where we are today. We're at a place where we're kind of moving from the celebrating evil to now even persecuting those that still call it evil because we've allowed people in power, institutions in power in the United States and in other Western cultures around the world to allow for progressive postmodernist ideas to take the driver's seat, celebrate evil, and then say that their version of morality says that evil's actually good and enlightened and that anybody that still believes that that evil is evil is now persecuted. So if you still believe that people should live in monogamous relationships, you're inherently bigoted and closed-minded. If you believe that sexuality was designed for a male and a female, you are bigoted, you're a homophobe. If you believe that God created male and female, male and female, you are inherently transphobic. We have completely allowed for society to dictate morality apart from God. And this is where we are today. At a place where women are claiming to be feminists and then celebrating incredibly degrading music that objectifies them sexually. Cardi B, good example of this. 
just released one of the worst songs I have ever heard. In fact, I, I can't even say the name of it on this show, and I actually would not recommend that you go and listen to this. Certainly don't let your kids listen to it. It is, it is a horrific piece of trash, honestly, this song. It's degrading to women. It is completely objectifying. It treats women as sex objects. And yet the feminist movement in the United States right now is hailing it as an anthem of female empowerment. We are calling evil good and good evil. We have celebrated debauchery and then criticized those that desire to live a pure and righteous life. We have celebrated those that are willing to sacrifice their families on the altar of career and criticized those that have said that they would like to prioritize family above career. We've criticized women that decide to stay home and raise their kids in the formative years of childhood. And we have celebrated the women that are willing to abort their child in order to achieve career success. Saw that at the Golden Globes last year. Culture has celebrated lazy and weak men. They have celebrated the men that are 30 years old but dress like they're 12 and act like it too. Has celebrated the men that sleep around and don't take their responsibilities seriously while demonizing men that desire to step up and lead well, to act responsibly, to man up, to act with chivalry to the women in their lives. Culture has, has seen that as a sign of the patriarchy and therefore has sought to rid the world of oppressive masculinity. When in reality, the very thing the world needs is more healthy masculinity. Men that are willing to step up and be godly men like God created them to be in strength and courage and resolve. So all this to say, culture has redefined evil, at least they've sought to, redefine evil, and then persecute those that still call it evil. All of this has happened over the past few decades through moral relativism. So what do we do from here? Where do we go from here? What do we do about this? I do believe that there's hope, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but I really believe that for Christians and for people of virtue that desire to stand up and really fight for truth, I believe it looks like standing up for the truth, speaking out on the truth, being willing to say in public forums, this is right and this is wrong. These things are right. These things are wrong. This is truth. This is false. We buy into this lie that if we're doing that, then we're somehow unloving. And it's just not accurate. I have to be able to speak the truth in love. It's a core tenet of the show. And actually, it's not loving of me to not speak the truth. If someone is standing out in the street and there's a car coming toward them, and I don't warn them of the car coming toward them because I'm afraid that it might offend them because they chose to stand there, am I really loving them? Or am I doing a massive disservice because I see a destructive habit happening, believing of a lie, and I'm not saying anything about it? I've mentioned this before. If you want to exercise selfishness, you'll tell people what they want to hear. If you want to truly love people, you'll tell them what they need to hear. I hope that the people in my life will do that for me. I count on it. I rely on it. I need people to do that for me, to tell me the truth, even when sometimes the truth hurts. Because... I do not want to live in a morally relativist society where because I'm afraid of being offended or because I'm afraid of being wrong, I morph truth to fit my desires and my liking. God has explicitly warned against this multiple times throughout the scriptures. Paul addresses this multiple times. So we ought to speak the truth 
in love, even when it's uncomfortable. Of course, we do that prioritizing the relationship and sensitively, et cetera. And then we also, we, we believe the Bible because it's the word of God, not because of whether or not it lines up with our already preconceived beliefs. So I humble myself and allow the Lord to dictate my life. I lean not on my own understanding, but in all my ways, acknowledge him and trust that he will direct my path. And I really do believe this, that people, as they see more and more Christians willing to go there, willing to be bold, be courageous, step out, live for the truth, speak honestly about what the truth is and what it is not, the more attractive that really is. People don't want a lazy faith. They don't want a timid faith. God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and love and a sound mind where we're able to be honest that is where non-believers, that is where people that are living astray, that are not seeking virtue in their lives, say, you know what? There's actually something in that person that I, I, I want more of that. I wish I had the, the strength and my convictions that that person does have. That is my hope and my prayer. That's how I believe that we change things moving forward. We do not allow the church to buy into moral relativism. More than ever, we push into the church embracing the truth of Jesus Christ and the reality of the laws that he set before us that we should love our neighbor and love our Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we allow him to dictate our morality. And with that, I'm really hopeful. So I hope this was a helpful episode today. I know that this was very philosophical in nature and that there were a lot of ideas that we covered, but I, I do believe that this is important to recognize because it is prevalent in society. And again, We've seen the logical conclusions of moral relativism in the past, and if we don't understand history, if we don't take the time to learn it and to truly receive the lessons that it's trying to teach us, then we are doomed to repeat it. So moral relativism, big piece of the 20th century, big piece of a lot of societies that have fallen disastrously over the last 100 years, and we want to make sure that we don't repeat the same mistakes. How do we not repeat the same mistakes? Lean into absolute morality. Seek the truth, not your truth, not my truth, the truth. So with all that being said, it has been an absolute blast to talk to you today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please share this show, subscribe to the email list on my website to receive the show notes, the outline from this episode and yesterday's episode in your email inbox on Friday. You can subscribe to that email list on my website at refiningpoliticsandculture.com. Please, if you would feel led, donate to the show. That would mean a ton as we continue to grow this content and desire to put out more and more content for your enjoyment. I am looking forward to speaking with you again on Tuesday. I hope you have an incredible weekend. This has been another episode of Refining Politics and Culture with Michael Seifert. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>